Wow. Well, thank you, worship team. Jeb and Isabel, Dustin, that... Yeah. <laughs> it's perfect because uh, suffering servant we're looking at today in Psalm 13 is a psalm that David wrote when he was going through some, some major suffering in his life. So, it's very fitting. <laughs> and... Uh, Hope I have enough Kleenex to get through this today. Uh, well, welcome. Grace Bible Church, Gainesville service for November 5th, 2023. And again, it's uh, always a blessing to get an opportunity to share God's Word with you all. And today, we're going to be heading back into the Psalms as we walk through the Psalms whenever Pastor Brandon needs some time off and here at GBC, I'm sure most of you are aware of that uh, we, we preach the whole Word of God. We preach the Old Testament, the New Testament. And so as Pastor Brandon is taking us through the book of Matthew, and in Matthew we're seeing the King. We're seeing Jesus Christ, the King, in His glory. And I've been walking us through the Psalms, and in the Psalms we're seeing Yahweh God and His glory, but also we get a glimpse of our Lord Jesus' glory as well. That's what's so amazing about the book of Psalms, is that it shows God's glory, and it also shows our Lord Jesus' glory. And that's because the Word of God is the Word of God, because it was His Spirit that guided all the men who wrote it. And so, the Psalms were written by men who were led by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has always been in the world, but back here in the Old Testament, He was only indwelling a certain chosen few because it was only after our Lord Jesus died and rose that He ascended to the Father in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit now indwells all believers. And here in the book of Psalms, we, we have these writers, they're guided by the Holy Spirit. And so all the writers in Scripture were guided by the Holy Spirit. And the Apostle Peter, he tells us this, Peter said that these men who wrote the Old Testament were, were moved, they were led. He said that in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21. He said those men who wrote the Old Testament, he said, holy men and moved by the Spirit of God as they wrote. And they were led along by the Holy Spirit. So every word was God-breathed. Every writer in God's Word writes with their own style. They have their own personality, but everyone was led, moved by the Holy Spirit to write what they wrote. This is why we can read the Bible and we can see that there's a clear theme. We can see the thread that runs through it all. And that theme that runs through the entire Bible is one person. God's Word points to one person. That one person is our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit points us to Christ. And forever thankful for that because our Lord Jesus suffered, He died for us on the cross. So we're forever thankful for that because our salvation came at a great personal cost to Him. Our Lord Jesus suffered horrible agony as he, for us to attain salvation. So this means that when we, read, when we read Scripture, as we're going through our times of suffering, we have a Savior that can comfort us because He's already experienced suffering and infinitely more. The Apostle Paul said that 
The desire of every true believer is to have a deeper desire to know Christ. That's our desire as well. He said that in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. In Philippians 3.10, Paul said, to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death. For all of us as believers, we all have a desire to know our Lord Jesus Christ much deeper in a more intimate, deeper way. And the more we understand our Lord's suffering and what He endured for us, the better we understand His suffering. We will be, it'll, it'll, just, it'll be able to grip our heart and it helps us to love Him more. And help us get to a place in our Christian walk where we can say like Paul did. Paul said this in Philippians 3.7. He said, but what things were gained to me, I have counted these things to be lost for the sake of Christ. Our Lord Jesus suffered for us on a cross. Our salvation came at a great personal cost to Him. And so here today, as we begin to walk through Psalm 22, and what a great, great day to begin this walk through Psalm 22, because today is our communion Sunday, and so what a great way to prepare for the Lord's Supper as we Look at Psalm 22. What we're going to do is, because Psalm 22 is so important, there's so much there, I'm going to try to take it slow and and break these 31 verses into three parts. That way we can take our time and we can dive a little deeper. So today we'll we'll just look at the first part, which is part one. We'll look at verses one through five. My prayer is that when we're finished walking through Psalm 22, that we'll be able to understand the cross and our Lord's suffering even better. Because really, Psalm 22 is one of the most amazing prophecies that, that we have of the crucifixion of our Lord. It was written some thousand years before Jesus Christ was even born, but we have this amazing look ahead at Calvary, and, and it has so much detail. And what's so important part of this is in Scripture is because what Psalm 22 does is it's unusual because it, it really takes us inside the mind of our Lord Jesus. It shows us what He was thinking as He's hanging on the cross. As He's suffering on the cross. As He's paying the debt of sin that we owed. A debt that we could never pay. And so what David put down here is this... Really, it's his most prophetic psalm that he ever wrote. I mean, David is writing this. He, he's going through some hard times. He was, he was going through a trial. And so he started writing down his thoughts, but as the Holy Spirit moved him, as he wrote, he was writing about something way beyond him. We know this because we really can't find any part of David's life where he's writing about what he's writing about here in Psalm 22. We can't find anything in his life that happened to him that even matches this. I mean, we know that David did go through a lot of heartache in his life, but nothing like what we see here in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is is suffering on a whole other level. And so it could be that David wrote this psalm while he was suffering. He was experiencing suffering and maybe he was trying to be poetic. But it's amazing how perfectly it fits with what happened to our Lord Jesus on the cross. And so David was being prophetic. And maybe he didn't know he was being prophetic. But have you ever thought of David as a prophet? We really don't think of David as a prophet. We think of him as a shepherd, as a king, as a man after God's own heart. But a prophet, we don't really think of him that way. But what's interesting is what the Apostle Peter said about David in the book of Acts. We can miss this. In Acts chapter 2, 
and verse 29 and verse 30, Peter says something about David that's interesting. Acts 2, 29 and 30, here's what Peter said about David. He's talking to the Jewish people. He says, men, brothers, I confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Because he was a prophet, and he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to set one of his fruit, one of the fruit of his body on his throne. He, that's David, looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he would that he was neither forsaken into Hades nor his did his flesh see corruption. So here we have Peter telling us that David was not only writing about his own personal experiences, but he was also writing as a prophet who was looking out into the future and speaking of Christ. David was speaking of the sufferings of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. So what we have here in Psalm 22 was David, he's writing about something that, that's happening in his life, but through the Holy Spirit, as he writes, the Spirit is pointing him to a man, our Lord Jesus, and his coming crucifixion. And what's amazing is the form of death by crucifixion hadn't even been invented by the Persians yet. So David, as he writes this psalm, remember this is a thousand years before Jesus was even born, and this psalm will be fulfilled literally by him on the cross. And so this is, this is an amazing psalm. Because it not only, again, gives us to look at the horribleness of what goes on during a crucifixion, but it also lets us see what our Lord Jesus is thinking. What's going on in his mind as he's hanging on the cross. And remember, death by crucifixion was invented to be the most cruel, horrible, agonizing way to die. Again, the Persians invented it, but the Romans perfected it. And it was perfected, it was perfected to end the life of someone in the most painful, most humiliating way. And so when someone was nailed to the cross, it was a slow and painful death. It could take weeks. Because ultimately what someone on the cross would die of was suffocation. They would suffocate because after so many days of pulling themselves up to the point where they could take a breath, as their strength would be all used up, they couldn't pull themselves up anymore to catch a breath. And so they would die. They would suffocate. And it was agony. It was a horrible way to die. In fact, it was so horrible, it was so horrible that if you were a Roman citizen or a woman, you could not be crucified. Crucifixion was only for the worst of the worst. And so here in Psalm 22, again, David, he's showing us that, that what's going on while our Lord Jesus was crucified. And so if you're not already there, please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 22. So just what did it cost our Lord Jesus to pay for the debt of sin that we all own? Psalm 22. Why did our Lord Jesus come into the world? Why did he come as the perfect Lamb of God? So let's look at Psalm 22 and let's read all of it today and then we'll, we'll look at verses 1 through 5. Psalm 22. And God's holy word reads, For the choir director, according to Ajala Hashathshar, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my salvation are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I call by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned upon the praises of Israel. 
In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you rescued them. To you, they cried out and were granted escape. In you, they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They smack their lip. They wag their head saying, commit yourself to Yahweh. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me out of the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for distress is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls. The bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a lion that tears and roars. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I count all my bones, they look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Yahweh, be not far off. O my strength, hasten to my help, deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog, save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of wild oxen. You have answered me. I will surely recount your name to my brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear Yahweh, praise him. All you seed of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you seed of Israel. For he has not despised and he has not abhorred the afflicted of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard, Of you is my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise Yahweh. May your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Yahweh. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. For, king, for, the, for the kingdom is Yahweh's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive, their seed will serve him. It will be recounted about the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done it. And there ends the reading of God's holy word. And let's go to the Lord and have him bless our time together in this psalm. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this this amazing psalm. And for our Lord Jesus, our suffering servant. We thank you for the innocent lamb who was slain on our behalf. Father, we ask that this psalm will help us love and adore our Lord Jesus, even more. And Father, I pray that your spirit will, will be our teacher today and 
I ask you, please, preach a better message than I have prepared. Have the Spirit use me as an instrument for your glory. Father, we ask all this in your name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Here's what, Star, here's what Charles Spurgeon once said about Psalm 22. He said, Before us we have a description both of the darkness and the glory of the cross, the sufferings of Christ and the glory which shall follow. Oh, for grace to draw near to see this great sight. We should read reverently, taking off our shoes from our feet as Moses did at the burning bush. If there be holy ground anywhere in Scripture, it is this Psalm 22. <laughs> That's quite a quote coming from a man like Spurgeon. But this is an amazing psalm. And so the title of today's message is The Glory of the Cross. And like I said earlier, it's too big to try to do it all in one bite, so we'll break it down into three bites, three sermons. Today is part one of Glory on the Cross. And we'll look at verses one through five, like I said. We'll break these five verses down into, three, into two truths today. Two truths. So again, as David is writing this psalm, he's writing about something that he's going through, but then the Holy Spirit is moving him to write about a coming man. A man that will suffer greatly, but not for himself. And so as we look at Psalm 22 first, first as we look at verses 1 and 2, we're going to see what is the condition of this man? What is the condition of the man? And then second, as we look at verses 3 through 5, we'll see what is the confidence of the man? What is the confidence of the man? So as this psalm opens, we have again, David, he's going through a trial. He feels abandoned. His enemies are closing in on him. But as he's being moved by the Holy Spirit, everything about this psalm is pointing prophetically to Christ. And so what we'll see in these first five verses are, this man, what is his condition as he endures this trial? And then, what is this man's confidence? What is he confident in as he goes through this trial? So let's dive into this amazing psalm. Psalm 22, part 1. First, what is the condition of the man? Verses 1 and 2. What is the condition of the man? Verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my salvation are the words of my groaning. Verse 2. Oh my God, I call by day but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. And so the, what's the condition of the man? Well, we see a man who's in great distress. We see a man who's suffering deep, deep in his soul. But why? What's the cause of this tremendous distress? Well, there's definitely, we see a feeling of abandonment here, of, of alienation. But notice Notice it's not because of lack of faith. Because right off the bat, notice he says, my God, my God. He uses the word my. So what we see here is, this man has a personal relationship. It's his God. It's a personal God. It's, he's saying, it's, he's my God. And this personal relationship is not with just any God, but it's with God. God Almighty. So there's a close personal relationship, but now something's changed. Something's happened to this close personal relationship. And we can see this because this suffering man says, God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you deserted me? So there seems to be a separation now between this suffering man and God Almighty. 
And so there's, there's something deeper going on here in this experience. Something has led to this feeling of separation from the God that he knows personally. And so we, we can remember these exact words were spoken by our Lord Jesus on the cross. And so let's go to the Gospel of Matthew and let's take a closer look at these very words that were spoken on the cross by our Lord Jesus. So if you want, you can keep your place here in Psalm 22, but let's flip over to Matthew chapter 27. Now if we go to the book of Matthew in chapter 27, in Matthew chapter 27 in verses 45 and 46, we see our Lord Jesus, He's hanging on the cross, but towards the end of His life, as He's dying on the cross, what would cause our Lord Jesus to cry out, like verse 1 here in Psalm 22, Well, let's read verses 45 and 46 and get a closer look at what's going on in Matthew 27. Matthew 27, starting at verse 45. It says, Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So what happened? What could have happened to cause the Son of God to cry out what David wrote in verse 1 of Psalm 22? Why does our Lord cry out this? Why does He cry out this way? Well, let's try to look at what's going on here. And so it's here, towards the end of these, His agonizing six hours hanging on the cross. And by the way, the fact that our Lord Jesus died in only six hours on the cross is really a blessing from God the Father, because remember, it took some men weeks and weeks to die on the cross, but it took our Lord Jesus only six hours. But it's towards the end of those six agonizing hours that he's really feeling the weight of the judgment that, that's been, that he's been enduring. And he's, and he's also feeling that separation between himself and God the Father. And so he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, sometimes we can become so familiar with the cross, we can lose sight. We can forget what it was like for our Lord Jesus as He paid the price for our sins. So we can talk about the cross like, yeah, He died on the cross for my sins. Sometimes we can take it for granted. We can forget the meaning of the cross. But, but we want to be like Paul. We, we want to be like what Paul said in, in Philippians 3.10. We want to we know the fellowship of His sufferings. So we can love Him more and be more like Him. So as we dive in for a closer look at Matthew 27 and verse 45, what was our Lord thinking while He was on the cross? Again, Psalm 22 helps us understand this. So let's set the scene. Look at Matthew, again, 27.45, and notice the statement here where it says, Now from the sixth hour darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. So I think we can all agree that this is not something natural. It doesn't, it doesn't get real dark during the day, especially at noon, unless there's a total eclipse of the sun. And even a total eclipse of the sun only lasts from about, they say, 10 seconds to about 8 minutes. And so for, for there to be darkness in the land for 3 hours, there's really no human explanation for this. That from noon to 3 p.m., there was darkness. A supernatural darkness. And what's interesting about this darkness is, what did our Lord Jesus claim to be? In John 8.12. Well, in John 8.12, He said He was the light of the world. 
that whoever walks in Him will not walk in darkness. And so He's the light that comes into the world. In fact, John begins the Gospel of John that way. All who are in Him are in the light. We have fellowship with Him in the light. John says that in his epistle. And so our Lord Jesus was identified as light. The light of knowledge, divine knowledge. The light of virtue, divine virtue. But from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, we have darkness. So that's again, 12 noon to 3 p.m. In the afternoon, there's darkness. And so as we piece together what went on on Good Friday when Christ was crucified... And so if we go to the Gospel of Mark, we can see that Jesus was nailed to the cross at the third hour, that's 9 a.m. in the morning. And so for three hours, He's hanging on the cross, He's suffering physically and emotionally, but with all with the light of the sun. The sun came up as usual, and it was shining as normal until noon. Everything about the daylight was normal. And what we also find out when we piece together what happened at the crucifixion, in those first three hours of suffering, is that our Lord Jesus was mainly silent. He didn't have too much to say in those first three hours. But He did break that silence in those three hours to say only three things. He spoke only three things in those first three hours. And the first time He spoke, it was was to those who crucified Him. It was for all the Jewish leaders who had Him crucified. As they're standing around the cross, He said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And then the second time, he spoke to the thief who was being crucified next to him. The thief, the one who said to him, Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Our Lord Jesus said to him, truly this day you will be with me in paradise. And then the third time that he broke the silence was when he said to Mary and to John, he said, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And he was giving his mother over to the care of the apostle John. So it was only these three things that were spoken by the Lord that broke the silence in those first three hours as He's hanging on the cross in the normal daylight. And notice that all three times that He spoke, they were all statements of grace. Grace to offer forgiveness for His executors. Grace to offer to the thief to bring Him to heaven. Grace offered to His mother and to His disciple John. The only words in those first three hours that broke the silence were the words of grace. So that was the first three hours in the cross from nine to noon. And then we come to the second three hours in the cross from noon to three. And what happens? Well, darkness falls on the land. And so we ask the question, was this darkness everywhere? Well, the Greek word used here could mean that it was the entire earth. It could mean that darkness covered the planet because remember, it was already dark on half the planet. So it could mean that darkness covered the rest as well. And what's really interesting about this darkness is that it is recorded in history because we have Roman historians, Plagian and Tertullian, who actually wrote about this strange darkness that came over the earth. There's actually a document called the Report of Pilate to Tiberius. And in that report it says, the emperor was aware that in all the world on a certain day from noon to three o'clock, it was so dark that everyone had to light a lamp. So it could have been that the Lord just turned the lights out. There's really no, no explanation for this on a human level or even on a physical level. So what's going on here? What was happening to our Lord Jesus as He's suffering? Why was it dark for those three hours? Well, when we look at Scripture, what we find is that darkness is a symbol of judgment. Darkness, darkness depicts judgment. We see it all through the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. 
Darkness is associated with judgment. So what this means is what we're looking at is we're looking at God's judgment being poured out in the darkness. So we have God's salvation, which is spoken of as light, and we have God's judgment, which is spoken of as darkness. In fact, hell is even called the outer darkness. So as we look at Matthew 27, 45, what we see here is with the darkness, it's showing us that God's wrath is at work in the death of Christ. God the Father is telling us by this darkness that the cross is a place of divine judgment. It says in Isaiah 53, I read it earlier on our call to worship, it says, He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement to produce our peace fell on Him, and by His stripes we are healed. And so the darkness then is God's way of saying that, that His fury is being unleashed on Christ that the darkness is God the Father's judgment on sin, what that means is he's, he's pouring out His wrath onto His perfect Son as He hangs on the cross. This completely innocent Son of God, innocent of any sin, but He is the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who will carry the sin because something must be done with sin. So He has come, the innocent, sin-bearing, substitute, suffering Lamb of God. This suffering man, our Lord Jesus, is hanging on the cross because of sin. And because of our sin, he's having to go through all of God's divine judgment. All his wrath is being poured out on him. This is why he came into the world. He was born as, the, as this because God the Father only judges one thing. And that one thing is sin. And God the Father commanded the Son to come into the world to be the sacrifice for sin. He is, he is the Father's chosen Lamb to bear the sins of all the people who would ever believe. This is the Father's will. And the Son must submit to that. He must be obedient. And He is obedient. And obedience demonstrates love. Obedience demonstrates love. It always does. And God the Father was pleased with what the Son did. That's why He raised Him from the dead. And so this is the divine wrath. It's unleashed against sin, against the one who is taking the sin upon himself. And again, this man hanging on the cross, he's completely sinless. But God the Father has imputed the sins of his people through all of redemptive history onto his Son. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Paul said, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become righteousness of God in him. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3, Paul also said that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And the Apostle John said in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us, and He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So what we have going on here on the cross with the darkness is the massive expression of divine wrath and fury. As God the Father pours out the same kind of wrath. It's hard for us, I think, to fathom this. The same kind of wrath that is promised on the day of the Lord. But only it's poured out on His Son. So that the one suffering here in Psalm 22 is he who had no sin, but he had to be punished for someone else's sin. 
And so everything goes dark. There's a supernatural darkness. And what this tells us again is that the Lord Jesus is being punished by God the Father in an unimaginable, massive way for sin. It's a massive way. Just how massive? Well, this brings us again to verse 46 of Matthew chapter 27. In verse 46 of Matthew 27, it shows us just how massive this punishment and the wrath of God was because in verse 46, our Lord Jesus, it says, cries out with a loud voice saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So in that ninth hour, right near the, the end of the darkness, God the Father separates himself from God the Son. And so God the Father makes it dark, and then he separates himself from God the Son. But we also have to remember that when our Lord Jesus cries out here, it isn't because he lost his faith in the Father. It, it, it's really a cry because he's disorientated. Because for the first time here, he's disoriented because he was so used to the Father's familiar, protective presence always in his life. He was so used to the fact that God the Father was always there. But now, all of a sudden, the Father's presence on the cross is gone. And there's this disorientation, and he cries out as his enemies close in. And the eternal sinless one, he's bearing all the sins of all throughout history. Our Lord Jesus, while he's hanging on the cross, he's suffering the full wrath of God. I mean, again, imagine that for a moment. How awful is the full wrath of God? And again, this shows, us why, this shows us why Jesus can be the only Messiah. He can be the only Savior. Because God could only, it's only God who could only take God's full wrath. Full wrath and fury. And so here, when the closeness is gone, and the fellowship is gone, and He's all alone, and so as the darkness ended, so did the life of our Lord. And here at the end, with the fury of God, it's almost spent. He's just poured it out on him. But don't forget that the horror of the experience of the cross, it wasn't just the wrath of God, which is horrible enough, but it was also the absence of God. And so here it says that Jesus, again, cries out with a loud voice. The word literally means he screamed. <laughs> so six hours of agony, and three of those agonizing hours we're in the darkness as he's bearing the fury of the wrath of God against all the sins of all who would ever believe throughout all of human history. But as the sin-buried judgment comes to an end, our Lord Jesus gathers all of his strength and he screams in the deepest agony of his heart, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quotes Psalm 22. And what this scream shows us is that the pain of the separation from the Father so why did God again separate from His Son? Again, it's because God the Father is holy. And so He, can, he, can, he has to separate Himself from the One who's carrying the sin. All the sins were laid on Christ. And again, we need to understand that our Lord Jesus was not separated from the nature of the Father, but He was separated from the fellowship with the Father. It was a total separation from, that, from His fellowship because a total separation of nature can't happen because the Trinity can't be divided. 
because the first member and the second member share the same essence. They are unique individuals, yet they are one, and they, they cannot be separated that way. But yet our Lord Jesus experiences what cannot happen. The fellowship is gone. And so Jesus didn't cease to exist. He didn't cease to be God. He could only exist as God, but yet as He was cut off from the fellowship with the Father, although never ceasing to have the same nature as the Father, so humanly, it's, it's, <laughs> we can't explain it. We can't explain it. But for the first time, and the only time, God the Father must forsake Jesus because He is holy. And our Lord Jesus is carrying all the sins of His people to the cross. And really, what our Lord Jesus is experiencing here is what hell is going to be like. This is what hell will be like. Although they will be in the presence of God, hell is an eternal, endless separation of fellowship with God. And what this separation is showing us is that what our Lord Jesus did by bearing all of our sins, the separation shows us the proof that our Lord Jesus was bearing our sins. Because God would have never separated Him from, from Him if He hadn't been bearing all of our sin and guilt. And so this suffering goes deep because for the first time ever, in all of eternity, the Heavenly Father is separated from the Son. And if you notice both from Psalm 22 and Matthew 27:45. What we see recorded here for the first time as we read through Scripture, this is the only time that our Lord Jesus does not address God the Father as Father. Again, it's because the one suffering, our Lord Jesus has taken sin upon Himself and the Father has turned His back. But just how did it happen? If God is a Trinity, then how can God the Father separate Himself? Well, it's a... Well, a total separation, again, just isn't possible. The Trinity can't be divided because the first member and the second member, again, share that same essence. They are unique individuals, but they, are, they cannot be separated. Jesus didn't cease to be God. He could only exist as God. But again, He was cut off from that fellowship. So we don't understand it. We can't explain it. And many men smarter than, my, smarter than me have tried to understand it. But they, don't, they couldn't understand it either. They really don't understand how God the Father could separate Himself, the human side of Himself, from His Son. It's a mystery. And it's such a great mystery that even a man like Martin Luther, Martin Luther is said to have gone off into seclusion for a long time, trying to understand it, but came away as confused as when he began. And so all we know is that in some way, somehow, in the secrets of the divine sovereignty, Christ was separated from God for three hours at Calvary as the angry wrath of the Father was poured out on the sinless Son, who, through loving grace, became sin for those who would believe in Him. And so as we flip back to Psalm 22, back to Psalm 22, David is writing this as he's going through a trial. And David does feel abandoned. Again, verse 1 of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So David, with the moving of the Holy Spirit, is prophesizing about another suffering man. Because our Lord Jesus feels the abandonment. He feels forsaken. Again, when our Lord Jesus was forsaken by the Father, it's because He's taking on all the sin. And so this great gulf between happened between the Father and the Son. As the Son is taking the sins of others, and so He was not fit for fellowship with the Father. 
And so he's separated from his heavenly Father. He's in agony. And so then David says in the last part of verse 1 of Psalm 22, David says, Far from my salvation are the words of my groaning. We have this word here, groaning. The words of my groaning. Groaning is, is the meaning of, it, ha, it has the meaning in the, in the Hebrew of like a roaring lion. But when we look at our Lord Jesus on the cross, we saw that our, our Lord was mainly silent on the cross. So what this word is showing us here is that this groaning, it came from inside. It's an inside cry or moan of someone in distress because there's no way, there's no way of the crucifixion. There's no way out of it. This is why He came into the world. He came to die. And the Father is not going to save Him here. So for the Son, it's like, it's like His prayer it isn't being heard. He's lost that fellowship. So He's left to suffer alone. And again, Psalm 22, is, it's taking us inside the mind of Christ. So as He hangs on the cross, and as He's feeling this immense pain, and not just because of the physical pain and agony, but also because of the, the mentally, the, the separation from His Father. There's a sense of abandonment. There's a sense of alienation. And now notice what it says in verse 2 of Psalm 22. Verse 2 says, Oh my God, I call by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I have no rest. It's really interesting that we had three hours of daylight and three hours of darkness while Christ is on the cross. And through all this suffering, our Lord Jesus understands that God, is, God the Father is aware of His groanings. He's aware of what's on His heart. But again, because of this abandonment, this being alone, as God the Father is pouring out His wrath on His Son, through the light of the morning sun, and then through the darkness of the late afternoon, the Father separates from Him. But here's the amazing thing. Even through all of this, as our Lord Jesus is suffering, He's abandoning. We get, to, we get to see just how amazing He is because as He hung on the cross, and as we looked at it earlier in those first three hours of anguish, He wasn't looking out for His own needs, but instead He was looking out for the needs of the people around Him. Remember, we saw His grace that while He was on the cross, He showed grace to those men even when they're mocking Him. The ones who placed him on the cross, he asked the Father to forgive them. He showed grace to the thief hanging next to him. He showed grace to his mother and John. Where in the world could we ever find a man that perfect in history? That great, that selfless, who suffered so much, though he was completely innocent of any wrongdoing. Didn't do anything wrong. And so first, here in Psalm 22, what we see, we see the condition of the man. And the condition of the man is immense suffering. He was in intense physical pain and all alone. And for the first time, he can't feel the presence of his Father. He's all alone with your sin and mine. As the Heavenly Father who cannot tolerate sin, separates himself from the Son, and then he pours out his wrath on him. The condition of the man. And now second. Second, we see the confidence of the man. So we see that this suffering man, has, he's never lost faith. Again, David is writing this about himself, but he's prophesying about someone greater. And so as our Lord Jesus is hanging on the cross, as he's going through all this horrendous agony, what is he thinking about? 
Remember, David is writing this, but it goes beyond David. So what is he thinking about? Look at verse 3. Psalm 22. Yet you are holy, enthroned upon the praises of Israel. So everything that David's gone through, all of his sufferings, yet he understands that God is sovereign. David knows Yahweh God. And when we apply this to our Lord Jesus as He hung on the cross, as He's suffering, what is He thinking about? He's thinking about the holiness of God the Father. And so as He's going through all this agony, He's not in fellowship with the Father anymore. Yet He's thinking, yet you are holy. There's not one microscopic little bit of doubt that what God the Father is doing is anything but holy. Our Lord Jesus is saying, Father, I understand why you have to pull yourself apart from me because at this moment I am bearing sin. And then David writes, enthroned upon the praises of Israel. The word enthroned here has the meaning of sitting, remaining, or dwelling somewhere. And God the Father chose to dwell with His people in the tabernacle and the temple in Jerusalem. All the people went there to praise Him. And when we look at our Lord Jesus as He's suffering everything on the cross for us, He still has absolute trust in His heavenly Father. He has not lost faith at all. And so no matter what was happening at that moment or how alone He felt, our Lord Jesus knew that God the Father was in control, ruling over His time of greatest need. And then in verse 4, we have in you our fathers trusted. They trusted in you, rescued them. David knows his history. He knows, he knows about God delivering Noah. God delivering Abraham and delivering Joseph and Moses. That he brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And what all this shows Israel is the fact that when God's people trust Him, their trust was never in vain. He never... He never failed their trust. He never disappointed them. David uses the word trust two times here in verse 4. So where is his confidence in? And also as our Lord Jesus is suffering on the cross, where is his confidence in? It's in the character and holiness of his Father. He was forsaken, but he never lost confidence in the character of God. And for us, it's good to remember this. Because whenever we come into a situation which seems there seems no end, I can't see the end. I can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. But when we're disoriented, when we're unsure, when there's no explanation of what's happening, so before we fall into the sin of doubting God, we always need to remember who He is and what He's done and be confident in that very thing. So what is your confidence in? Who do you trust? And we see more of this confidence and trust in verse 5. Verse 5 says, To you they cried out and were granted escape, and you they trusted and were not disappointed. We know that David went through times like this. David was surrounded by his enemies, but God granted his escape. God took care of him. And as we look at our Lord Jesus on the cross, Again, as he's bearing, he's bearing the curse for his people, we can see his confidence and his trust in his Father. Our Lord Jesus has complete confidence that his fellowship with his heavenly Father is going to be restored. How do we know this? How can we be so sure? 
Well, if we look back at Matthew chapter 27 and up at verse 50, in Matthew 27 and verse 50, as our Lord Jesus' life is coming to an end, it says, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His Spirit. And so what did He cry out with a loud voice? Well, we find that in John chapter 19 and verse 30. And it tells us that our Lord Jesus' last words were, and notice that, that our Lord Jesus had plenty of air left in His lungs. Remember we talked about dying on the cross is by suffocation? That when you're so exhausted you can't pull yourself up to catch your breath? Well, our Lord Jesus, it says, cried out again with a loud voice. So He had wind. So what that tells us is, it wasn't the crucifixion that ended His life. It was Him who ended His life. He ended His life when He wanted it to end. But it says in John chapter 19 and verse 30, what was his last words? He said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. So the mission was accomplished. The work of redemption that the Father had given to him was accomplished. Every requirement of God's righteous law had been satisfied. God's holy wrath against him had been appeased. God had, had just it had exhausted himself in his, in his wrath. And our Lord Jesus suffered on the cross for six horrible hours for you and for me and the last three hours in the darkness of His heavenly Father forsaking Him as He suffered His heavenly Father's full fury and wrath. But again, in that, He had full confidence and trust in God the Father because He had a plan to fulfill. He came to fulfill a plan and He finished the plan of redemption by substitution. He finished bearing the wrath of God for the sins of His people and He did it willingly. John 10, 17 and 18. Here's the plan for our Lord Jesus. Our Lord Jesus said this in John 10, 17 and 18. He said, For this reason the Father loves Me because I lay down My life so that I may take it again. No one takes it away from Me but, but from Myself I lay it down. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Our Lord Jesus came into, the, came into the earth to die. He was the perfect Lamb of God. He was the perfect sacrifice to God. Remember that every sacrifice, every sacrifice was an offering to God. And the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ was no different. He was, the, he was God's Lamb he was the Lamb of God, offered to God as a sacrifice. He didn't die because he had sins of his own. No, he was innocent, but he died in the place of the guilty. He was punished by God. He died as God's chosen substitute. God determined the penalty for death is sin. Sin is death. God determined that. And so he went to the cross willingly in total submission to his heavenly Father. And with complete confidence and trust that his death would completely satisfy his God, his God the Father. Our Lord Jesus went willingly to the cross. He went willingly to be the sacrifice, the substitute, and the substitute to God the Father. He was the substitute, the sacrifice, and the satisfaction. He was all three. And how wonderful it is today, again, that we get to celebrate what He did on the cross as we take communion together. Psalm 22, the glory of the cross, part 1. And we're just getting started in Psalm 22. 
And we saw the condition of the man, the confidence of the man. Again, David is writing this about something he experienced, but the Holy Spirit is just taking him to a whole different level. A level of sacrifice that the world has never seen. And so as we wrap this up today, we conclude the great good news of the Gospel. The great good news of the Gospel is that the finished work of redemption is finished. When our Lord Jesus said, it is finished, He was triumphant. It was finished. And finished is what it is. And, when, and we can add nothing to the work of Christ. We can't add anything. We can't add baptism. We can't add any religious ritual. We can't add penance. We can't add any human work whatsoever. There's nothing any human person can do that could ever add or improve the sufficient finished atonement that our Lord Jesus accomplished on the cross. It is finished. The atoning work was done. The sacrifice was made. The provision for salvation was complete. And it's ours by grace through faith as a gift. And so when Paul said in Philippians 3.10, to know Him and the fellowship of His sufferings. So when we're in Christ, when we're believers, what Paul is telling us is that we're not, we not only gain salvation, but we gain somebody to fellowship with fellowship with when we suffer. We have somebody to fellowship with when we suffer. And it's somebody who has suffered far beyond any suffering that we will ever know. Far beyond any suffering that we'll ever feel or experience. And believe me, we need a companion when we suffer. The glory of the cross. The good news of the Gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when we repent and we put our faith in Christ... We can be forgiven because He paid it all. And now we have access to the presence of God. It's available to everyone who will come through Christ. And we're all welcome. We're all welcome to come to the cross. We're all welcome to come to the suffering servant. And I ask, how could could we ever look at the cross and just walk away? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for the amazing, glorious gift of Your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank You that, Father, we can receive the salvation provided in Him simply by confessing our sin and believing in Christ as our crucified and risen Redeemer. We we thank You for this amazing psalm. We thank You that that you instituted, you instituted this ordinance, this, this remembrance communion, so that, we can, so that we can never forget the sacrifice that He made for us. And as we now get ready to come and take the bread and the cup, Father, we ask that You fill our hearts with gratitude and remembering the joy because of the gift of eternal life and forgiveness in Him. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.